We are in the second week of our Lenten series titled The Shift. And over the course of this Lenten season, we are focusing on five key paradigm shifts that we find in the Gospels that Jesus invites his disciples to make. These are key shifts in how they think, how they live, how they view the world. Because we know following Jesus actually has the power to transform our lives. I don't know if you remember this, Alex. I think you were in class with me. So some of you might not know, Alex and I met when we were first-year seminary students at Trinity Lutheran Seminary. And Alex, I think you and I had every class maybe barring one or two together. And we sat next to each other through every single seminary class that we took. And I'm here to tell you that I took studious notes And I would often look over at Alex's paper, and it would just be doodles. Um, Look, I learned differently, okay? He he, 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 he he did learn differently. He he did. He also teaches differently. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. I love you, Alex. I don't know if you remember this or not, um, but one of our first classes, the professor wrote up two statements on the chalkboard. Can you believe the seminary still had? They didn't have smart boards. Um, I can believe it. It's a seminary. There was a chalkboard, and the the professor wrote up two statements. God loves you exactly as you are. And the other statement was, God loves you so much, God wants to change your life. And the professor wanted the first year, brand new freshman seminary class, to decide which of these two statements was the gospel. What's the gospel? Is it that God loves you exactly as you are or that God loves you so much that God wants to transform, change your life? And about two-thirds of the class, because this is a faithful Lutheran, you know, seminary, said God loves you just as you are. That's the gospel. Unfiltered grace. And after about five or ten minutes, people were arguing back and forth, debating. Well, but, but God does want you to uh, uh, back and forth. And here we were just week one and we're already mad at each other in class. And the professor, I'll never forget, the professor said he drew a circle around both statements and he said, this is the gospel. Yes, God loves you exactly as you are. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And at the same time, that love, that free gift of grace is the only thing that is powerful, powerful enough to change your life. Punishments don't change your life. Grace changes your life. Forgiveness changes your life. I preface this sermon and this sermon series with that statement. Because as we explore these five key paradigm shifts that Jesus invites us to make, we should be mindful that we don't make them in order to earn God's grace or to earn God's love. Or if there is such a thing as a crown with heavenly jewels in it, we, we, we don't get an extra jewel in our heavenly crown by making them. And yet... Because God's love is so powerful, because Jesus is so amazing, that when we learn to follow him, we find that we are invited to make these shifts. Do you see see what I'm saying here? And last week, we began this series looking at uh, the, the primary shift the disciples have to make, which is from a someday mindset to a today perspective. 
How many of us go through life thinking, someday I'll clean out the garage? It was my example last week. But we do this emotionally, relationally. We do this spiritually. Someday I'll live generously. Someday I'll volunteer. Someday I'll show up to Pastor Alex's Adult Connect class. The Israelites were certainly living with a someday mindset. For years and years, generation after generation, they had hoped and waited for a Messiah to come. Someday the throne of David will be restored and these Roman occupiers will be kicked out of Jerusalem. One day God's justice will reign. Jesus shows up on the scene and in Mark's gospel, after his baptism, after the time in the wilderness, what is his primary first statement? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's not someday, it's right here. The kingdom of heaven has come to earth in the form of the Messiah. What you were waiting for one day is right in front of you. And the disciples were invited to live into that shift, to live into the present. Well, this week, we encounter the second paradigm shift that we see throughout the Gospels. And our reading from Mark chapter 8 highlights it perfectly. It's a shift that Jesus repeatedly is trying to help his disciples make away from a play-it-safe mindset into a life of purposeful action for the Gospel. The disciples, just like us, are wired to play it safe. But Jesus is always inviting us to live into God's purpose, which sometimes doesn't place safety, self-protectionism as the primary motivator. Sometimes God's mission is so bold, so audacious, so inviting, so daring that we are called to risk, to risk love, to risk faith. I offer that to you at the beginning of the sermon because I know some of you, you like to know the whole thesis right at the start. So if you don't hear anything else in the sermon, that's the sermon. We are invited to move away from playing it safe to pursuing God's mission. But there's so much for us in Mark chapters 8 and 9. I love these two chapters of Mark's gospel. They cover about six or seven days in the life of Peter. Peter's sort of that primary disciple we hear about throughout the Gospels. And Peter's journey is, I think, so much like our own journey. And in the passage that I read, a little ways into Mark chapter 8, we see that Peter, Peter is scolded by Jesus. Jesus actually says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And then we have that very famous passage that, that we can all almost quote. If anyone want to find their life, they must lose it. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus, again, is trying to orient the disciples away from playing it safe into a life of purpose. But if we actually read um, what, what came right before this in Mark chapter 8, we would find even more meaning in this. Chapter 8 is fascinating. 
It begins with Jesus feeding 4,000 people in Mark's version. They leave the hillside where Jesus feeds the multitudes. And they travel through Bethsaida. Jesus heals somebody blind. And then they're making their way up into a new region called Caesarea Philippi. And about a year ago, I was blessed and fortunate to travel to the Holy Land uh, with my last congregation. And one of the places we visited was this exact region, Caesarea Philippi. And at the time that Jesus did ministry, Caesarea Philippi for generations had been a region devoted to pagan gods. The Romans, the Greeks, and others had had treated this region as a special place for deity worship. And this scene that unfolds in Mark chapter 8 is believed to have happened right at the giant rock face in the center of Caesarea Philippi. There's a natural water spring with crystal clear water right along the backdrop of this giant rock face. And there, carved into the side of the rock face, is what is known as the gates of Hades. Have you heard that phrase before? And the gates of Hades, the pagans believed, was a portal into the underworld. And it's right there, as they're walking into the region of Caesarea Philippi, where the road would have been lined with statues to Roman and Greek gods, pagan gods, that Jesus asked the primary question, the pinnacle question. Do you remember what it was? This is what it says. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the one coming into the world. Do you remember what follows? Jesus says, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now think of the context. Giant rock face behind them. A mountain of rock where all of these false deities were worshipped. And it's right there that Jesus says upon this confession, this statement that I am the Messiah, upon that I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, which is right behind them, will not prevail against it. In other words, I am the one true God. Peter, you've gotten it right. And Jesus actually calls him Peter Petra, which means rock, right there. This is like the pinnacle in Peter's life. Normally, Peter gets it wrong. He messes up. He he says the wrong thing. It's almost like Peter got a promotion to senior vice president right there on the spot. Upon you in this confession, I will build my church. And then immediately after this, after this revelation that Peter has, this confession, which I find tremendous grace in, Do you realize that Peter made this confession after two and a half years of traveling with Jesus? Two and a half years, he he sat at his feet. He heard him teach. He saw healings. It wasn't for two and a half years 
until Peter could actually say, I, I, actually, I actually think you are the Messiah. There's great grace in that for those of us that struggle and wrestle with our faith. Immediately after this scene, Jesus begins to explain what it actually means to be the Messiah. He says, okay, I am the Messiah. Here's what's in store for me. I must go to Jerusalem, I must suffer, and I must die. And Peter begins to rebuke him. No, (laughs) that's not the plan. No way, Jose. You're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to kick out the Roman occupiers. You're going to sit on the throne, and we're going to have 50 or 60 years of at least a reign of justice. Finally, the throne of David will be restored. What are you talking about? You're going to die, and in the blink of an eye, right by the rock face, Jesus calls Peter Satan. (laughs) Talk about a whirlwind of events for Peter. He goes from getting it so right to missing the whole point. And then what happens next, I think is even more profound. We're told as we read on in Mark chapter 8 and we get to Mark chapter 9, that for six days... Jesus and those disciples traveled from Caesarea Philippi down to Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is where we believe the transfiguration happened. And this is what it says. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And we know that it was on the top of that mountain that what Peter confessed to be true in Caesarea Philippi, that Jesus was Lord, would now be fully revealed on the top of the mountain. The full divinity of Jesus for the first time would be evident to the disciples. I wonder as they traveled up that mountain with Jesus, if they were expecting something miraculous to happen. Why might they be expecting something miraculous? Because they were faithful Jewish people that had studied the law. They knew that on the mountain, Moses received the commandments. And when he came down from the mountain and he faced the people, his face was shining so bright the people had to turn away because the glory of God was too much to behold. I wonder if they were thinking as they climbed up that mountain with Jesus about Elisha and how on a different mountain he called down the justice and reign of God to defeat 300 prophets of Baal. I wonder if they were thinking about their own mountaintops and hillsides that they had already been on with Jesus, where they had witnessed the multiplication of loaves and fish, where they had heard Jesus speak and preach. And as they're on the top of this mountain, carrying that confession with them, I wonder if they were ruminating or meditating on the words that Jesus had so plainly spoken to them. I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must die. And three days later, I will rise. But on the top of the mountain, what we're told happens is that the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God was fully revealed Jesus was transformed before them. His clothes became dazzling white. There appears Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, speaking with Jesus. And caught up in the whirlwind of emotion, of excitement, 
Peter once again gets a bold idea. He says, let's build three dwelling places and stay on this mountain forever. Why would we ever want to leave this moment of glory? A year ago, when I traveled up to the top of Mount Tabor and took in the beauty surrounding the valley below, the Kidron Valley, the the sights, I felt just like Peter. At that time, I had already had the call to Good Shepherd in hand. I'd gone through three congregational interviews. I'd met with the church council. The congregation had met and voted already to call me as your next pastor. And this trip to the Holy Land was my final trip with my former congregation. I was so excited for the new call and the new adventure here. And yet, in that moment, I felt like Peter. I just wanted to stay where I was comfortable, where I was known, where I felt a degree of safety. Maybe you've felt that way before. You know God is calling you to trust him. God is calling you to lean into your faith. Maybe God's calling you to to live with a greater degree of generosity, of love, of purpose, of forgiveness. And yet, like Peter, like me, you you just want to play it safe. Something remarkable happened on that mountain with Peter. As soon as Peter develops the plan to just build three dwelling places, stay in the moment of glory forever. Do you remember what happens? God sends this tremendous fog to cover the top of the mountain. And I love this. Now, there's such a thick fog, Peter couldn't even swing a hammer if he tried to build a dwelling place. The only sense that Peter has access to is his hearing. And do you remember what happens after that? A voice cries out from heaven. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. The same exact line from the baptism of Jesus is now repeated. The full divinity of Jesus is being revealed. Listen to him. And in Matthew's version of this story, when the fog clears because the fog always clears. It doesn't last forever. Jesus alone is standing there. Moses and Elijah are gone. And Jesus comes to the disciples, and in Matthew's version, do you know the first words Jesus speaks to the disciples? They were just told to listen to him. Do not be... Say that again. Do not be... Do not be afraid. And then Jesus starts marching down the mountain. Where is he headed? Jerusalem. What's going to happen? He's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be nailed to a cross. Do not be afraid. Because the mission of God is never about playing it safe. It's about pursuing God's grand purpose, Jesus came to be our savior. 
to pour out his life because God knew that we are broken, sinful people that need a redeemer. We need God's grace. Jesus didn't play it safe. And the disciples were called, invited to trust in their faith, to trust in the promise, and to walk down the mountain with them. Here's what I can tell you. I had to leave Mount Tabor a year ago. I drove down the mountain. I didn't walk down it. And I'm so grateful that I did. I love you, Good Shepherd. I love this church. And even though a part of my heart wanted to stay where I was comfortable, I am so grateful that God has continued to lead and guide me and us together. It's been almost a year we've been together now. I highlight this story because I think into our future as a congregation, we, like those disciples, will face that same paradigm again and again and again and again. Will we choose as a congregation to stay comfortable with what we've always known, what we've always done, how things have always been, or will we boldly trust that God has a purpose, a mission for us? Will we trust God in the way of love, the way of grace, the way of forgiveness, the way of peace, the way of generosity, even when the world at times tells us to harden our hearts, focus on ourselves, don't care about others? You see, the life of following Jesus is always a pathway of losing our life so that we can find it, dying to self and rising anew with God. And a year into this calling at Good Shepherd, here's my honest confession. I feel a year in less equipped to be your senior pastor than I did when I interviewed. Can anyone relate to that? You get a new job, you get a promotion, you step into a role, you're so excited, and then you realize, whoa, there's a lot I have to learn. And while that might be true, here is what I'm more confident of. I am more confident that it is by grace alone that I can do this work. It is by God's provision through me. This isn't about Pastor Lorne doing anything. This is about God working through me, humbling me, changing me, and trusting that that grace is sufficient. That grace is sufficient for all of us. You see, Jesus is always inviting us to get out of a someday mindset into the present, to not just play it safe, but to pursue what God wants for us. We're going to lean into a few more of these paradigm shifts over the next few weeks. And I promise you one thing is certain. As we learn to truly live and love like Jesus, we find that we have everything we need. Because we get to link arms and do this work together. There's no super disciple. There's only the body made up of many parts working together to pursue a world restored with grace and peace. I am so grateful that I get to be a part of this body. Amen.